Hello, friends. Welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Udzik. I'm sitting here on this beautiful morning on my porch, so you might hear some birds. This is episode 127 with Kevin Cantor, who is one of my favorite humans in the world. Like, I cannot tell you how phenomenal they are. You'll hear it somewhat in this podcast. So in the middle of the podcast... A phone, came, a phone call came in, and I declined it, but didn't realize that uh, that turned off the recording. So there will be a little uh, break that you'll hear. We'll address it in the recording. Yeah, so you're really going to enjoy this episode. It's going to be great. Poetry, theater, gender, all the bare necessities. I also want to give a shout-out to my current crowdfunding project. If y'all haven't seen me post about it on the social media feeds... Uh, so Jules Bertha and I have written a new musical. It's called Hoops of Steel, two-person musical, Ophelia and Laertes, which queers the Hamlet narrative from the perspective of a non-binary performance artist, Ophelia, played by moi in our first production. We're hoping to put it up with the Denver Fringe Festival in the fall. Um, Lots of cool perks. We've almost raised about 600 of the 2,500 we're hoping to raise. Lots of cool perks. We'll have a link in the episode description. So please throw at least five bucks towards this really cool thing. And if you're unable to, find a friend who can. That's all I'll say about that. Friends, I hope you're having a lovely day. Be queer. Make art. Enjoy episode 127 with Kevin Cantor. to welcome Kevin Cantor to the podcast. Welcome! <laughs> Thank you. So, right now you're finishing up the Milwaukee rec leg of a new play. Uh, tell me all about it and your role within this piece. Yeah, so um, we are closing on Sunday uh, the American premiere of Things I Know to Be True by Andrew Bovell. Um, who is an Australian screenwriter and playwright. Uh, we, it had its world premiere in his home country of Australia back in May of 2016, um, and then subsequently had a production in London and a tour throughout the UK. Uh, but this is the American premiere here at the Milwaukee Rep, um, and I'm originating the role of Mia for American audiences, and it's been a wonderful time thus far. It's my first show here at the Milwaukee Rep, um, and yeah, it's been really wonderful. It's been it's been it's been really well received, which is exciting. So, our, our dear friend Ada Karamanian, can you talk a little bit about her involvement in bringing you to this project? Yeah, so um, the Rep has a wonderful uh, local casting team led by Frank Hans, and they also partner with uh, Dale Brown's casting office out of New York, um, and they brought Ada on uh, as a casting consultant. Um, particularly for my role, um, because uh, me is a, a TGNC character in the show, um, and they were doing right by that in uh, making sure that they were only seeing um, trans and non-binary folks for that role. Um, so Ada came on as a means to really reach out specifically to that community uh, so that they could be seen for the show. Um, and then the rep really did the work of doubling down on that and bringing Ada on in in extended consulting capacity. So she was actually on the Reps campus with us for a week or so of rehearsals uh, to sit down with uh, the director, Mark Clements, myself, and some other cast members, also meet with their emerging professional residents, 
um, which is sort of like an internship apprentice program here at the Milwaukee Rep. Um, so she really spearheaded the charge as a, a TGNC consultant on the project. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a gift. And I think that it's, uh, I mean, you know, you don't want to hand out cookies for doing like the, uh, the doing the work, you know, like uh, doing what you should be doing. Right. Um, but it has been a really wonderful opportunity to work with the rep and see that they are positioning themselves um, as thought leaders in ethical casting practices. For folks who might, that phrase might be new to them. Can you unpack yes. that a little bit? Uh, ethical casting practices. Yes, yeah, of course. I mean, so, uh, I think thankfully uh, there's like an overdue um, focus uh, or credence being paid to the narratives of TGNC folk on stage, on film, in media at large, right? Um, but with that comes the, the the need to actually make sure that TGNC folks are uh, gifted, not gifted, um, given the their due credence in telling those stories and being part of the process in those stories um, being developed. Um, I mean, something that I always say is that if if you're planning on programming uh, queer and trans narratives on stage, it should only reason that queer and trans folk are in some way benefiting and or profiting from the trafficking of those narratives, right? Um, so n not only is it casting queer and trans folk in queer and trans roles, like that's sort of full stop, bar none, what should be happening. Um, it's also making sure that they're part of the process in ways that extend just beyond um, us being on stage, uh, such as bringing someone like Ada on as a consultant um, to make sure that there's like not just one trans voice in the room advocating for transness and having to be put in this, uh, given this undue burden of like speaking for an entire community, because that's just not possible, right? Um, but yeah, it's making sure that we are active participants in the telling of our own stories. Because uh, it's one thing to program queer and trans narratives. Um, it's another thing to actually honor the intersection of opportunity and representation. That doing one without the other is not actually doing the work. Absolutely. Uh, there's a, a quote that I, or a piece that I can coming back to by MJ Kaufman. Uh, it's about five or six years old now, but it was for HowlRound. Uh, I believe the title of it was Don't Call Me Ma'am on the Politics of Transcasting. Mm -hmm. And they sort of did a lot of the legwork five, six years ago in terms of interviewing folks, uh, in terms of why trans and queer voices weren't in the room or being cast in those roles. And the two points that they came up with that producers or companies at the time were saying was either they can't find trans talent, and if they do, they're not qualified enough and or castable across repertory casting. Do you think that's changed? Um, I do I think it's changed? I mean, I think that those reasons that MJ was met with are, are bullshit to begin with. Right, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, they said so in the piece. Yeah, absolutely. There. Yeah, of course. Right. And I mean, I think I think there's a few, there's so many problems with, with that initial response. And some I think I've shared with you before. The first being that um, that we have always been here. So like if, if you say that we can't find them, like you're just not doing the necessary legwork in order to, to do so. Um, so I call bullshit. And then uh, the second one being like, they're, like that uh, trans and queer folk are like not adequately trained, I call bullshit again um, because we, we certainly are. But then I would also uh, say then why isn't there, and I've said this to you before, like why isn't there onus then 
um, for you know training programs to be actively recruiting right. uh, trans and queer folk into their programs to provide them that training um, because if there's a demand for us um, and then CDs are saying well we can't find adequately trained actors for these roles then there should be I would think a a demand for these training programs to be actively recruiting those communities um, so bullshit, you know, like all around. Uh, so, but has, has there been a, a sense of change? I, I, I think, yes, in small ways, slowly but surely, I think the rep is, my casting in this role is, is evidence of that, that there are um, certainly within regional companies across America now a better understanding. I've also, uh, I presented at this Deterra conference, the um, National Conference for Gender Equity in the theater uh, this past October, Milwaukee. Um, on uh, creating spaces for trans and non-binary actors, um, everything from casting policies to, uh, you know, how we can better serve those artists in our spaces once we welcome them into those spaces. Right. So from the welcoming to them actually being the boots on the ground, if you will. Um, and also have done extensive conversation with Emily Tarquin, who's the artistic producer at the Actors Theatre of Louisville, um, in developing more inclusive casting breakdown language as a means to actively be inviting TGNC folks into the room for auditions. So I think uh, there are people who, you know, have their finger on the pulse or their ear to the ground, what have you, in regards to um, actively shifting the culture does more work have to be done? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. I, I mean, the sound effect of that. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Uh -huh. I mean, I just like, I, you know, I see things every day. You know, I'm, I'm part of the um, Trans Actors Guild on uh, group on Facebook. And you see things every day that like folks are like posting and being like, wow, look at this problematic shit that's happening right now. Right. And it's so true. And whether that's, again, like, you know, you know, well-intentioned and or ignorant uh, cis folk being like, we want to tell queer and trans stories. And it's like, you have welcomed none of us into the room to do so. So it's like, you're not really doing that work, even though you think you are. We met at the Satera conference. Yeah, we yeah, shared an we Airbnb. It was the queerest retro it Airbnb. It was so I love queer. It. Shout out for uh, Andrea, Andrea Prestonario for bringing us all together. It's so, yes. Um, and shout out to Ring of Keys. If y'all haven't heard me talk about enough about that organization, which is incredible. Um, the, you, at, at one of those late night conversations at the Airbnb, you talked about <laughs> this party metaphor, inviting folks to the party. Yeah. And I would love to hear, there is a siren. I know. Underscoring the importance of this party <laughs> metaphor. But I would love Flag for you it. to offer it to our listeners. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where I first heard this and I wish I did so I could give due credit. Um, but essentially, it's, it, it's the language of if you send out a single invitation that says everyone's invited to the party, you're not inviting me to the party, um, which is to say when it's like, uh, like, you know, all everyone come out for this. Right. Um, I need you to explicitly state like we are actively seeking 
uh, trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming folk for this role, right? Unless you specifically name me, I'm not showing up to this one party that you've just invited everyone to. That's not inviting me. Um, and the reason that that's important in actively naming um, the, the, the communities that you're hoping to uh, support and provide platform to is that it signals to the gatekeepers um, the powers that be, even though I'm hopefully working to actively dismantle that system anyway, just heads up. Um, <laughs> uh, it signals to those gatekeepers that um, these are the particular communities that are in demand. Right. Um, and otherwise, you're just paying lip service to the idea of inclusivity and diversity. And like the word diversity, again, is so problematic because it's so hackneyed that it's come to not mean anything. Um, I believe, at least in the ways that a lot of, like, uh, institutions that hold power use it, um, which is, again, just to pay lip service, right? Um, so you have to actively invite individuals to the party. You can't just be like, everyone's invited. Everyone has a seat at the table. Like, that's not doing the work. That's just lip service. Like, set a place for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I have so many questions I want to ask. <laughs> where, where are we going to go next? Where are we going to go? I it was interesting sitting in on those different sessions. Some of them we sat in together, some of them we sat in apart. Yeah. And there's some rhetoric that I'd love to unpack with you and get your opinion on and your response to. This, this uh, having, having fairly large companies say, each year we see more and more trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming after submit, dot, yeah. dot, dot. And then to sort of push on that a little bit and say, cool, when can we see those folks right. on your stages in meaningful ways? And having the answer sometimes come back as, we're not sure if our audiences are ready or we're actively considering it. What do you think that moment of hesitation is within some of these casting practices and how can we sort of blast that open a bit? I mean, there's so there's so much to that. I, um, I think that... Because companies of all, companies of various sizes are facing, especially regional companies, are facing various challenges as far as um, their programming is concerned, uh, based on like who their subscriber base is and, and what sort of programming they do and, and whether it's new works or, or musicals or classics, you know, what have you, right? So there's, there's that variable that plays into a lot. And the reason that I think that's worth mentioning is because those companies are then considering the ways in which TGNC folk fit into the telling of those stories. And that's, I think, one of the major hangups that people have because they don't realize that like we can fit into any stories. You know, we've always been here. Like, like we we right. have the ability and and should be given the space to be a part of telling those stories regardless. But I think that they they frame this question you're asking through the lens of what their programming is, which is why I mention it. Um, I think that, well, I'll use my experience here at the rep as anecdotal evidence that um, regional companies are ready for TGNC actors on Absolutely. stage and, and that, our that our identities manifest in ways that extend beyond just the way that we portray whatever character we're portraying on stage. Like my presence in the community as a trans non-binary actor working at this company um, and someone who is out and, uh, and is, is public about my identity and, and, and not in like, you know, a, 
like a every day I walk into the room and like am like ready to start and engage in like conversations regarding social activism but in a way like living publicly does ask that of me sometimes maybe not in ways that I always am like wanting to engage in but it's just like the reality right but like inviting those artists into your community is more than just giving them a paycheck it's like it's actually engaging your subscriber base at large to like un, you know new people and and I said this I said this recently to a group at the Milwaukee Rep during a talk back that like I am so grateful um again I'm using like the language of grateful but I am I am happy to be uh to be portraying and telling a story on stage that in part um lends itself to my identity but also my transness is like not the most interesting thing about me. It's one thing about me. And that my identity was something that, um, that offered me space here and incentivized uh, them to bring me here was wonderful, but it's allowed them to let them know me as a full person. And I think that, that we have to realize that like that's also important. <laughs> when when making space for TGNC artists that like we're not one faceted we're, there's not only one kind of story we can tell um, and that welcoming, welcoming us into these spaces I think that they have like a wealth to learn from us absolutely and another piece that MJ brought up in their uh, essay for HowlRound is this we have to stop as an industry treating any role that's not specifically designated as trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary as then by default it must be portrayed by a cisgender actor yeah no <laughs> yeah no i mean i've been playing you know it's like like oh god i how many day how many moments throughout the day Am I having to play cis, you know, right. like, and no one's paying me for it. Um, and, you know, it, it, so, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's just not true. Absolutely. And that's something where I think, you know, I'm in the PhD program, which we were talking before. I'm like, any day now, someone's going to be like, oh, my gosh, we made a mistake. You, you're not actually supposed to be here. Imposter oh. syndrome is real. Oh, my God, but it's so real. this idea of like I need to narrow down my research question for a dissertation down the road mm. and what's come up for me as of late is this idea of how do we quantify the profound and prolific acting experience that trans and gender non-conforming and non-binary folks have just in the fucking real world right yeah. because that doesn't hit someone's yeah. acting resume I'm lucky that I have a couple dozen really great credits on my acting resume and the way that it's evolved is it's about half and half male and female roles in yeah. a little a little pocket of non-binary roles but this thing about not being qualified enough it keeps me up at night a little bit and I'm trying to think about like what research could be done or how it could be presented to casting professionals that yeah, my resume might be a little light, but I have more acting experience than an MFA program could okay. ever possibly provide me. I mean, it's so interesting because that language, I mean, like when I, I, I feel like I've entered spaces where I've tried to convey a similar notion, but then I find myself wading into that like dangerous territory of, um, of, of making the, uh, making any sort of parallel claim that like 
trans folks are like inherently duplicitous or or acting you know right, right. because it's it's not that it it's it's that we are so uh we are so used to code switching you know uh, for the lack of a better phrase like there we're we're we're, we're used to um certainly certainly the idea of um of being aware of the ways in which we are perceived by another and or or an audience if you will right that is something so yes there is there is a a, a sense of of performance but like whenever yeah I, I always get wary of being like oh yeah i mean i, I we just did it our, we were you know engaging in conversation ourselves about this and but yeah it's like you 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 tread that line you toe the line of uh you never because that's some dangerous rhetoric that people engage in about you know like tjnc folk are duplicitous or acting or faking or or pretending to be someone they're not and it's like that's not quite right <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely and one of the one of the things my therapist says sometimes i come in and i'm just like i want to tell you about all the cool stuff that's happening oh that's dope and they're just like yeah because we get to be successful too mm. and i think the other side of that is we get to be boring too and i yeah. want to see like boring fucking trans characters on stage <sighs> thank you <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, and not boring and not, not boring not engaging but like i i think I, I just upgraded to Spotify Premium, and that comes with a Showtime subscription. And I want to see Asia Kate Dillon's work on Billions because I had right. another person in my PhD program uh, Facebook message me, and he was so excited. He's just like, "Yeah, sometimes Taylor's an asshole, but they always get their pronouns right." Right. Well, I mean that right. It's it's like it's we're still at that point where a lot of um, trans narratives are about just their transness and like right. again that's not the most interesting thing about me um and i mean i i've also said this when talking so this play that i'm in right now things i know to be true is written by andrew Bovell, who is lovely a lovely human being brilliant i had an uh, such a wonderful time working with them um and he is a straight cis white man and we had a lot of conversation about what it means to write outside your own experience, lived experience, and like the ethics of that. And um, he was pretty emblematic of, of I think, best practices in the sense that um, he has written this this TGNC character, and now in this iteration, they've done the work of casting a TGNC actor. And one of the first things that we did in our first week of rehearsals, we sat down in the room, and he's like, "I just want to listen to you." What do you feel is ringing false? And like, let's fix it. Can and I, we can I pause there yeah, for a please. brief second? Did you get an extra dramaturgical fee above and beyond your acting fee for doing that work? Um, I did not, but uh, I did not. I did not. Just an idea to throw out for people who are producing. Yes. No. No. Absolutely. I'll, it should be a line item on your budget that if you're going to have someone speak on their own experiences a specific in in a way that doesn't exist 
in the room without them, um, that you should be compensating them for that labor. The reason I didn't press on the issue was because I knew that they had hired Ada as a consultant. That I didn't feel like I was the sole voice in the room. I knew that they had done some outside work in bringing someone else on board. Um, Had I been the only individual, I probably would have pressed the issue more. Um, But again, they made, they, like Andrew and Mark, the director, really made this space for those changes to happen, and they did, and and that was really important. Now, that being said, um, I still long for more plays that, again, trans characters are allowed to exist in a way that does not focus, obsess, or dramatize specifically that facet of their identity. Like, we do more than um, exist as TGNC folk. Like, I want boring... You know, not boring, but it's, but like it's hire, not about hire, that. Yeah, hire me because I'm a fantastic character actor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Hire me because I'm a great character actor. And, and I mean, yes, I would love to come in for trans and non-binary roles, but I'm honestly even more excited about, you know, just got cast as one of the conspiracy dudes in Coriolanus with local theater. And mm. I'm like, I'm more interested in doing that and seeing yeah. just what my body and my experience moving through that narrative does the entire story. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I love doing new work. Um, That's what I'm really passionate about. I also really love working on classics, which I realize feels like a little paradoxical, but it's because I feel like working on classics always kind of feels like doing new work. Um, But I really like new plays. (laughs) So what I'm really interested is I would love, love, love for more regional companies to to, uh, be more interested in actively programming trans playwrights. Because trans playwrights are the ones right now who are writing those roles for TGNC folk that allow them to do more than just interrogate their own transness. Um, so I, I as a, a non-binary person, do want to be playing more non-binary roles, but not roles that are obsessed with the fact that I'm non-binary. Just like, just roles that are written for me that are fun and exploratory and, 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 uh, and three-dimensional and um it, again i i am happy i i'm like thrilled to be originating this role right now um and it's my first time in my career as a tgnc actor playing a tgnc role which is like so wonderful um and i hope to continue doing it um but right now the wealth of those roles that seem available um are largely written by cis folk in which, again, those characters are really only interrogating their identity. And, like, that's just not something I want to continue to be doing. I, I know myself. Yeah. I don't, need to, I don't need to teach cis audiences through the vessel of character about myself. I would rather, you know, like... <laughs> I mean, and, but I, that, is, there's, that is part of the work. It's, yeah. I, don't, um, I don't think it's not valuable. I, I see the value in it, certainly. But I don't want that to be the only thing that trans and gender nonconforming characters are allowed to do on stage is treat cis people or teach cis people like who and what we are and how we operate in the world. Absolutely. Let's just take a moment to like wrap on trans playwrights that we know. I know a great resource is the Trans Lab program. Yes. Uh, and I believe that's done in collaboration with the Public Theater and it, MJ Kaufman and Ada Karamanian are kind of at the helm of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. They just announced their second cohort. Um, I'm not in it. Uh, <laughs> I did apply. But I'll apply but again. you're a playwright, right? And so you're yes. a playwright, I'm a playwright. That's two. Ayla Sullivan, MJ Kaufman. Yeah. Who else uh, can you think of? Uh, Basil Kremendal. Yes. Uh, Kit Yan is also, I think, part of, uh, is Translab. Um, not, I think. I know that, I know that they are. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, ooh, you, you, you said, you said Ayla, you said MJ, uh, I said Basil, um, why can't I think right now? I put you. Um, I put you on the spot, but we'll definitely link to the yeah, trans lab. There's more. I mean, and also in, there, in the episode, there are, there are there are trans playwrights and trans femme playwrights who I know are also included on the Kilroy's list. So like, hit yeah, that. snaps to Kilroy's. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it's not that. I guess the point that I'm saying is trying to make, uh, albeit awkwardly, is we're not that hard to find. No, no. I mean, I mentioned earlier that I was part of that, you know, I know that you are as well, the, the Trans Actors Guild Facebook group, and there's like 800 of us on there. Yeah. Like. And, but I also think that it's important, and hopefully it's okay for us to be talking about it, that it is a private group. Oh, absolutely. we need that affinity space yes. to be like, how many times have you seen something where it's like, ah, I need to renegotiate this contract, or I don't know how to handle this situation, or I even posted in there when I was having issues being misgendered during a rehearsal process. And oh, so it's yeah. important that it's an affinity space, but any of the folks that we've named, or just free, I will offer myself, like, freaking reach out to me. I'm the only Woodzik Woodzik on Facebook, and yeah. I will post in that group for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's there as a tool. Right. It, ha- it has to operate as an affinity space. That, it, that is incredibly important. Um, but it is also, I think, it's a wonderful networking tool and has allowed, um, yeah, people who are outside of that group can reach out to try. I mean, chances are that if you know a TGNC person in the industry, that they are connected in some way to that group. So do reach out to them and say, hey, share with your community. Um, and one of the lovely things about being, it, it, yeah, we, we are, I think, keeping one another connected, keeping one another honest. Um, calling out the work that is just wrong because <laughs> there's still so much of it, which is uh, a shame, but true. I want to ask you one more acting related question before we pivot to your writing. Yeah. But a question I love to ask actors is um, top of mind. What's on your bucket list to play? Like are there uh, specific roles that you're like this? Well, my, my initial inclination to that is it hasn't been written yet. Oh, I love That's that my answer. initial one because because of the other things I mentioned that I'm really interested in um, roles that are written for humans like me um, by a living playwright um, that again is not obsessed with um, m- the p- facets of my identity that have caused my marginalization, like just not obsessed with that, right? Um, but certainly it's there. Now, so there's that. It hasn't been written yet. But it's, again, I also said I like the classics. I want to play so many of the femmes from the canon. Like, I, I want to play Ophelia. I want to mm-hmm. play Juliet. Yeah. Um, I want to play Lady Macbeth. I, uh, you know, yes. all, like, I, I want to do them all. Um, I also really want to play Hamlet. I, I want to I play trans Hamlet. I want to I want to be like a non-binary femme Hamlet. Yes. That's what I want. I mean, I it's in one of my poems. That's what I was gonna ask yeah. ask you to um, to read maybe a portion of that poem because that's one of my favorite poems that you've written to sort of transfer trans I, I transition can totally us. Read that poem. Amazing the the bridge from theater then to your poetry. Will will you gift us with that? Yeah, shall I read it? I would love it. I have it right here, and I will pull it up, and it will be super quick. This is and oh wow, transitioning. On I'm just. The I just, I just am opening my phone now and seeing that my castmates have taken photos on it when I wasn't looking backstage. 
So this is, that's wonderful. Okay. Um, so this, uh, I recently played Iago in Othello and had a wonderful time. It was, uh, it was a wonderful season. Um, and, and uh, in this production, um, they cast a gay cis man to play Amelia. And regendered the role, regendered the role. That makes no sense. You know what? You ugh. language changed, is hard. They changed some pronouns. <laughs> yes, yes. So Amelia became Emilio, which is one of my pet peeves. No, <laughs> we have to give a shout out to Night at the Roxbury right now. Are you ready? Yeah, Emilio. <laughs> um, but it is one of my pet peeves. It's like, like, you know, changing a name to like reflect something more masculine <laughs> or feminine with an A or an O. Like I'm like, why? Like if we, if, if we still Prospera named him Amelia, right. I'm like, we all see that this is someone who's presenting as a man. Like we don't need to name him Amelia. Anyway, point being <laughs> that my Iago was gay. Um, because I was playing him as a man and I was married to Emilio and it was interesting, but like, it was also a little bit like to what end, um, at times, I found. Uh, so I was just thinking about like the ways in which um, we adapt Shakespeare and like how we can imbue uh, or queer the canon more intentionally. That's how this poem was born. Um, it's not necessarily what it's about, but that's just how it was born. Uh, and it's called Rewrites. Okay. Romeo and Juliet, but this time Juliet doesn't text back. Romeo embraces his bisexuality, he and Mercutio kiss a lot, and no one advises a young girl to drink all that NyQuil. Taming of the Shrew, but this time, no one is expected to laugh watching a man starve his wife. And at the end, our fierce femme protagonist pulls a pin out of her fascinator, stabs Petruchio in the neck, and stars in the second season of Glow on Netflix. Hamlet, but this time, Hamlet is trans. A non-binary femme doing their makeup while asking themselves to be or not to be because what is sitting down at a vanity and painting your hard face in its soft truth for the first time if not interrogating your own mortality. And the royal family will invest in some really good grief counselors. And no one shames the young prince for crying. And the young prince doesn't gaslight their girlfriend. And no one dresses for their daughter's funeral because no one drowns, because no one is stabbed, because no one has to die. You and me. But this time, we don't define our worth by how well our bodies retell someone else's story. And we laugh until we cry, and we cry until we laugh, because the binary of comedy and tragedy, like all binaries, cannot hold us. And I embrace grief as counselor, and I am not afraid to be femme, and you are not afraid to text back, and we throw a funeral for shame, and we kiss a lot, and we invest in some really good stars, and we glow every second of every season. Thank you so much. A poem. Oh, that, I, yes, I need the text of that poem because that Hamlet uh, stanza is really informing um, a new piece I'm working on mm. right now. Uh, and so thank you for that. I think so this is the second portion of our podcast. Because, Part two. Because I didn't realize that this app stops recording if you get a phone call, even if you decline the phone oh, call. Oh, look, there are lines now that there, says that, oh, that wasn't yeah, happening before. I am 
a, a, a master of observation. No, it's obviously. cool. <laughs> so we, you have just, in terms of what our listeners would do, I feel like um, last week tonight when John Oliver can't show Parliament clips in the UK. And so, oh my God, I love that shit. So he's just like, Gilbert Gottfried is going to read an oil change commercial <laughs> to you instead without any explanation. I love it. But we're, and we're back. Yeah. Um, and so we were talking about your poetry. Yeah. Tell me about your poetry after sharing that delicious poem. Yeah. Um, so in addition to my work in the theater, I also work as a spoken word and performance poet. Um, and I do mostly college and university shows. Um, when I, right after I graduated undergrad, I did a nine-month tour, toured around the country, did about 80 85 performances, uh, slept in a lot of Greyhound buses. It was a time. Um, but now I do when I'm not on contract. Um, and you, I said this before, but you, kevincantorbooking at gmail.com. Um, and a lot of my work explores uh, gender identity and queerness, uh, mental health, rape culture, and survivorship. Um, I'm going to the University of Michigan next week. I'm the keynote speaker at their Take Back the Night rally. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I call myself a spoken word and performance poet particularly, not because that I, I long for work to exist off the page. Um, that's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, and I, hackneying, um, I, there are some like schools of thought that are like, you know, like, oh, if the poem doesn't work on the page, then you're not doing it right. And I'm like, okay, fuck you, whatever. Um, because I do long to create actual live space for the stories to be told. Um, that's why I call myself a performance poet or a spoken word poet. It's less about the, the, the aspect of performance as much as it is that it demands for it to be a live shared experience between audience and speaker, um, much like theater, right? Um, and I'm very passionate about creating and upholding um, those spaces for stories to be shared and told. Um, not to say that you shouldn't buy books of poetry uh, you should, because there are so many brilliant poets who are living and writing right now, and they need to pay their rent, so you should buy books. Um, but you should also buy tickets to their shows. Uh, yeah, and that's what I do as a poet. Um, and you can also find my book on Amazon. It's called Endowing Vegetables with Too Much Meaning. And I'm working on my second manuscript right now, which is called Please Come Off Book. Can you talk a little bit more about the intersection of theater and poetry and what does poetry give you that theater doesn't yeah i think um what I, I came i came to poetry through the spoken word scene uh through the slam scene actually in denver colorado um the mercury cafe uh yes. is my home venue yeah i love them um and also my my main mentor being ken arkind who is just this brilliant brilliant man um and really spearheaded the charge in the youth poetry scene in denver um back in the early 2010s if you will uh and even before that and um so i came to it through the slam scene and it was a wonderful way to again have space for personal narratives to be shared and told um and so unlike my work in the theater where, you know, you, you are sort of reframing a narrative through the lens of your own understanding and then embodying that through character, um, it allows me to, to share parts of the self through performance and storytelling. Um, so they're, they're both similar in, in the way that they're manifested on stage, but they're, uh, it, it's exploring um, the self rather than uh, a character's narrative. Um, but both things I'm incredibly passionate about. 
and I think that we 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 often we always think of the theater as a tool of empathic reasoning and as a means to like teach empathy through storytelling. And I think that uh, spoken word and, and and poets really get to the crux and core of that work. Um, Lauren Zuniga has in one of their poems um, the line, everything I've learned about being a good queer, I've learned from poets and poets are cheaper than college. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it's so true. And at the end of the day, I think that I am a better global citizen. I, I know more about this world um, and, and my place in it um, and the work that I can do from having listened and being gifted with the stories of other poets. That's... I mean, it's the fucking truth. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what advice do you have for folks who want to act, want to write poetry, want to do spoken word? For folks who want to do what you do, Yeah. what would you tell them? How did I get here? Um, I would say that um, find communities that are creating work that you see yourself in and align yourself with them and, and, and ask for for them to grant you space. And if you can't find work that you can see yourself in, then fucking create it. And I think that there's a lot of early on in career, uh, early career actors, like whatever the fuck early career means now, um, in, in higher education and training programs, there's this lot of, I think they, in, they, there's a lot of focus, undue and unnecessary focus on large institutions that in many ways operate as gatekeepers in this industry. And it's not to say that they are not creating important work or work with merit, or in some ways doing the work of bringing folk up. I think that that is a culture shift that's happening. It's an important one right now, but I don't think that we need to constantly be looking to these gatekeepers as sources of validation for our worthiness in this industry. That we are worthy on our own merits and, and we have the faculty and agency to tell our own stories on our own terms um so do that fucking work uh and and then those institutions will take note and they're starting to see the profitability marketability of our stories and narratives and i say don't let them take it without taking you along with it you know like if they're going to profit off of the trafficking of queer and trans narratives they best well be sharing that profit with those communities uh, so yeah, do the work. And then go see others work. Right? Yes, go see others work. Go to your friends' plays. Be, yeah, you said this, be a good citizen, a theater citizen. I mean, I, yeah, I get so, I live in New York now, I'm based in New York. Um, and I have a lot of friends in Chicago and the number of times that like, I have to like actively hassle people to come. I mean, here's the thing. I understand the proverbial, like come to my improv show and me being like, I don't want to, but like <laughs> when someone is like, you know, creating a new play or doing a new reading, like support the work of your friends. Get that, on the fucking train. That can't exist in a vacuum, right? It can't. Because you want to show up for them, so they show up for you. I think there's a Get reciprocity and a karma. Let's, Don't click yeah. interested. Click going, bitch. <laughs> like, go. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then, because um, I know you have to... You have to be at your call. I have to go to a play. Bit. You have to go yeah. do a play. Um, but one of the questions I always love asking folks who are currently in production is, is there a line from the play that you can take us out with? Yeah, so Things I Know To Be True by Andrew Bovell. Um, the context that I'll provide for this line is that this play, what I love about this play is that he has written a show that allows profound moments of grief um, and revelatory moments of joy to share space and cohabitate and 
And that rich dualism, I think, is actually emblematic of the way that life actually operates. It's about a family, um, you know, loving not enough or loving too much or maybe not loving in the ways that you need. Um, so the line that always sticks with me, and is as simple as it is, um, Rosie, played by the brilliant Aubin Hegley, um, says at the end of the show, life goes on. And, and I think it's, yeah, life goes on. And... Uh, it's important to remember that change, this show reminds us that change is the only constant um, and that love between family members, chosen or otherwise, um, you, you can still fail people that you love, but that doesn't negate the love that you have for them. So while change is the only constant, I do think that love tethers us to the catalyst of, you know, that inexorable moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love Life it. goes on. Life goes on. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yay. Bye. Bye. Bye.